so this is the first week of a series in the Old Testament book of Ezra. It is a pretty good possibility that you maybe have never heard of this Old Testament book in Ezra, and you may be wondering, or you may be saying sarcastically to yourself, great, this is going to be exciting. I can skip church for the next two weeks because it's a three-week series beginning today, and you're already here today, so you can't skip today. Um, but, but I want to, uh, I think Ezra uh, is a great Old Testament book that is packed with lots of practical wisdom. And so we're going to walk through uh, highlights of the book uh, over the next three weeks and uh, just really see what God has uh, to say to us uh, over the course of this series. And so um, I, I want to just actually jump right in. We're going to start in Ezra uh, chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to start reading in verse 3. And I'm going to read all the way to chapter 3, verse 13. So if you have your Bibles with you, if you, um, uh, if you have a, a smartphone or a tablet, if you have the Bible app that is published by YouVersion, uh, then you actually go into the live section of that app, and there should be our sermon notes there. Um, but uh, I want to start reading this, and uh, this, is, this is great devotional reading. This will bless you. Uh, we're going to get lots of amens as we walk through this. And uh, so let's just read it together. The, the list of the men of the people of Israel. Uh, the descendants of Parosh, 2,172. Of Shephatiah, 372. Of Era, 775. I'm not going to read this whole thing. See, I wanted to trick you and make you think that, like, we were going to read all of this. Uh, I want you to reference it. So if you can see it in the Bible in front of you, the formatting turned out all weird on the screen, so it won't be up on the screen. But, uh, if, but if you can see my Bible, the list of the men and families that returned is about about two pages long. And so uh, so here's what I want to do. I want to read the, the tribes. So we have, first of all, the descendants of Parosh. And then in verse 21, we have the men of Bethlehem. And then in verse 36, we have the priests. And then in verse 40, we have the Levites. Uh, and then in verse 41, we have the singers. And the vocalist from the worship band said, amen. Uh, and, and then we have uh, verse 43, the temple servants. And then in verse 55, we have the descendants of the servants of Solomon. Uh, and then in 58, we have the temple servants and the descendants of the servants of Solomon. And then in verse 59, the, the following came up from the towns of Tamalah and Tel Harsha and Karub and Adon and Immer. And if you just say them confidently, you could say them wrong and nobody would know. Uh, but, but then they could not show, but they could not show that their families were actually descendants from Israel. And uh, they were the descendants of Deliah and Tobiah and Nakoda. Uh, those of you who are pregnant, maybe you're looking for baby names. This is a great rep part of scripture that, you know, to help inspire you. Um, Let's go down to verse 64. We're going to actually read this time. Verse 64 through uh, 313-ish. Now the whole company numbered 42,360. And besides their 7,337 men servants and maid servants, they also had 200 men and women singers. And they had 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. That's a lot of donkeys. And when they arrived at the house in the Lord of Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave freewill offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. And according to their ability, they gave to the treasury for the work uh, 61,000 uh, 
drachmas of gold and 5,000 minas of silver in 100 priestly garments. And then the priests and the Levites and the singers and the gatekeepers and the temple servants settled in their own towns along with some of the other people and with the rest of the Israelites settled in their own towns. And when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. That's really important. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their own, in their own towns, then the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. Then Jeshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, I'm saying, this is just, just as great, man. Um, and his associates began to build the altar of God uh, of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and they sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and the evening sacrifices. Then in accordance with what was written, they celebrated the feast of the tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. And after that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred feasts of the Lord, as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. And on the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Then verse 7, then they gave money to the Masonites and the carpenters, and they gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre, and, they, uh, and then, they would bring, then they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa, as authorized by Cyrus, king of Persia. In the second month of the second year, after their arrival at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Jeshua, Je- son of Josadak, I'm doing pretty well, aren't I? My mouth is dry, I need some water. And the rest of the brothers, and the priests and the Levites, and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem, they began their work. And they appointed Levites 20 years of age and older to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of uh, Hodaviah, and the sons of Hinnadad, and their sons and brothers, all Levites joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple... The priests in their vestments and with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. And with praise and thanksgiving, they sang to the Lord, he is good and his love endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord had been laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of his temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. And no one could distinguish the sounds of joy from the sounds of weeping, because the people made such a noise, a sound that could be heard from far away. This is the word of the Lord. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Let me give you some uh, context of what in the world is going on here. The first question that we have to answer is, who is Israel? Well, the nation of Israel is a group of people that God had chosen to be his people in order to, to raise them up to be a light to other nations in the world. And that's what we see in the Old Testament, is that the formation... And, and, and then the life of the people of Israel, known as the Jewish people. Their, their role was to be a light to the world, to, to demonstrate to the world, this is what it looks like to follow the one true God. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll realize that they had mixed success with this mission. 
uh, that they sometimes didn't do very well. Most of the time, they didn't do very well. And in fact, sometimes as a result of their disobedience to God, God allowed an, an enemy to overcome them and lead them into captivity. That is to say that Israel could have had their, their boss, the one true God, but because of their disobedience, God allowed them to be enslaved or, in, or held captive by another nation so that they would have a new boss. It was sort of God's way of saying, if you don't want to live in accordance to what my will is, or if you refuse to live in the ways in which I've called you to, then go ahead and have your way. And they often found themselves in captivity. Well, along the way, Israel actually splits into two nations, a northern kingdom, still called Israel, and then a southern kingdom that is renamed to Judah. And then what happens is Babylon comes along and they defeat Judah and they destroy the temple in Jerusalem and they force Israel, uh, the Jews, out of Jerusalem and into Babylon. So it's a way of saying when Babylon comes and, and they Uh, they beat Judah, they say, you don't get to stay in your own land and you don't get to worship your God. You need to come over here into Babylon and you need to worship our God and you're going to be held captive there. And uh, VeggieTales actually makes a movie about that um, called Rag Shack and Benny. So (laughs) I have a five-year-old at home, so you have to just excuse things like that when they come out. Uh, They remain in captivity for decades, actually Decades and decades, about 40 years, they remain in captivity until Babylon meets an enemy called Persia. And Persia comes along and defeats Babylon, and Israel has a new boss. Are you with me? Make sense? I was trying to think of an analogy to when, when, when your boss sort of changes. And I thought, oh, you know, your boss could change at work, but, uh, but that's not really captivity. Uh, captivity is like... Your work is not captivity, okay? You work unto the Lord, the scripture says. Um, So I thought, you know, what is captivity? Well, captivity is debt, and a lot of our largest debt is the mortgage. And so when, when Persia defeats Babylon, it's like when your mortgage gets sold. Come on, somebody. <laughs> so your mortgage gets sold, and you have a new boss, Right? There's a new boss in town because your mortgage got sold to another bank. And sometimes this works out rather well. Maybe the new bank is easy to work with, uh, all this kind of stuff. Maybe, maybe, maybe your mortgage got sold to Bank of America and things aren't going to go so well. Just, I shouldn't have said that because this is being recorded, but um, it's sort of like that. And when Israel's boss changed, it was actually pretty good. Because where Babylon, when they held their captives, they said, you have to come to our land, worship our God. Uh, when Persia held people in captivity, they actually, they said, we're still in charge and, and, and we're the boss, sort of speak. But you can actually return to your land and you can worship your God. And so what we get in the very first chapter of Ezra that we didn't read is that the Babylonian captivity becomes a Persian captivity. And, and the king of Persia says, Return to your own land and begin to worship your own God. And so we have the list of all these people returning from Babylon to Jerusalem in order to rebuild their city and rebuild their temple. And the temple was actually really, really important to these, this group of people. Uh, because rebuilding the temple meant the return of the center of their religious life for the nation of Israel. In other words, 
the temple was really where the presence of God presided in the Old Testament. Uh, where, where we sort of as a New Testament people, we, we know that in Acts chapter 2, the, the Holy Spirit, the character of God was poured out and can now dwell in our hearts. That, that when we accept Christ by faith, the, the, the character of God, the Spirit of God begins to dwell in us. And, and we have available to us all sorts, of, uh, all sorts of empowerment to go and live righteously as God would intend us to. Now again, we don't always do that perfectly, right? But, but that doesn't change the fact that the Holy Spirit is in us. But in the Old Testament, God had a specific location. And that location was the temple. And so when you place yourself in that sort of religious context and you realize that without the temple, there cannot be true worship of our God, you realize the devastation of being held captive by a king in Babylon who, would, who destroyed your temple and made you leave your homeland. This was absolute devastation for the nation of Israel. And so the offer to return and rebuild the temple meant for this people group, meant for the people of God, a return to true worship that they had not experienced in decades. Do you get the weight of what's going on here? And so this opportunity to go and rebuild the temple was absolutely paramount, not only to their, to their life as a nation, but their life, their, their spiritual life, their religious life, as well, because they indeed believed that no true worship could happen outside of the temple. And so for 40 plus years, they had been hindered from participating in true worship. And they were eager to encounter God in a very old and yet very fresh way. Do you get what I mean by when I say that? It was, it was sort of a return to that which was so sacred. But with that return to something that was so sacred was the desire for something very, very fresh in their lives. And so these people, that we didn't name all of them, but the people from the tribe of Parosh and the people and the men of Bethlehem and then the Levites and then the priests and then the singers and all in and then this group that we can't even prove that they're actually descendants of Israel but come on anyway if you're if you're on our team you're on our team if you're going to help us rebuild the temple then come on we'd love to have you right we have all of these people returning and it and it's it is essentially this it is a people that have all kinds of different roles and responsibilities but a singular mission and singular goal, to rebuild the temple and to return to worship. That's the one goal that even though these, these folks are very diverse, that's the one goal. And as you read through this list, you, you begin to realize that this group of people, the people of God, um, with their one goal, most can be referred to as what's called laity. Now, if you've been in the church world, world for a while, you, you know what laity means, but there's, there's a chance that you may not. Laity is sort of a fancy word for, for anyone who is not a pastor. So, you guys, with the exception of Justin, who's a pastor, Right? And so laity is anybody that's part of the people of God but doesn't have a, a, a specific, like, their life is, is vocational ministry. And when you look through this list, you, you see that most are laity, and then you have, like, 
The priests, three lines. And then the Levites, which is a priestly tribe, another like three or four lines. And then everybody else is laity. And so what you really get a sense of when you begin to understand who these tribes are and, and, and what's happening in this passage is that you begin to understand that the people of God are coming together from all different walks of life. We have singers, we have priests, we have Levites, we have the men of Bethlehem who are most likely carpenters or tradesmen. We have the people of Parosh. We don't know who they are. But they're doing, we've got all these different people taking on different roles, but a singular mission and a singular goal. And I want to use this Old Testament story to tell you this. This is my dream for this church. What happens in Ezra chapter 2, in all of its devotional beauty, I mean that sarcastically, is a dream that I have for this local church today, right now. That we would be a people from all walks of life who are strong in our identity that we bring to the community, but that together we work toward a common goal, a common mission, and a common vision. Because because the temple held so much weight in their life. There was, there was all kinds of things that could have distracted them from the work that God wanted them to do. There was all kinds of other possibilities. In fact, you'll notice that it was like, and they all returned to their own towns, right? So it's not like they're all just going to one singular location and then working together, but rather they're, they're coming from their own towns. Remember verse, chapter three, verse one, when the seventh month came, the Israelites who had settled in their own towns, but then the people assembled as one man in Jerusalem. This is, a, this is a way of saying that they came from scattered all over the place, but they gathered together for a singular mission. And guess what? You and I, we come from all, we scatter from all over, right? There are some of you from Windsor and Wellington and, and Greeley and Loveland and who did I forget? Fort Collins, like all these places, right? We gather from all these different places, from all over these different cities, and yet we come together And my hope and my goal is that we're coming together with a singular mission and a singular vision and a singular goal. Johnstown is what I forgot. That's right there. Severance. Severance. People live in severance. You know, like that Laporte. Laporte, right? Near Laporte. Okay. Again, people live in severance. Um, <laughs> but what I love in this, in this passage is that even though they come from all different places, and, and even though they're really strong in the identity of who they are, they're, all, they're equally strong in their identity of who they are together they're equally strong in their identity of who they are together and man my dream for this church is that we would come together with a really strong identity of who we are 
together. That, that, we're, that we're not a, a group of people that are going in a thousand different directions, but that we're a group of people going in one direction toward a common mission and common goal. Well, the good news is that God has already given us our mission. The mission of every church is outlined in Matthew chapter 8, go and make disciples. The beauty of the kingdom of God in, in all of its diversity and different expressions, though, is that each church takes Matthew 28 and says, here's the process by which we're going to go and make disciples. Or here's, here's what we feel like a disciple looks like and a disciple does. And, and, and we've really said that the mission that God has given us is to present Christ as Savior, pursue Christ as King, and partner with Christ in service. And these are not three missions, but rather they are three parts of one mission. And actually what they are is a process of fulfilling the mission, which is make disciples. And that is to say that we think that someone who is a fully formed and fully mature disciple of Christ will be presenting Christ to the world, will be pursuing Christ in an ever-deepening relationship with him, and then will be partnering with Christ in some way. That is a giving of themselves away, giving their life away. That when we look at the life of Christ, if we're going to be Christ-like, we have to be a people who are giving ourselves away. For, for the ministry and life of Christ was marked by servanthood and giving himself away. And so we may, we may have folks that, that do a great job of presenting Christ and they're pursuing Christ, but they're, but they're hoarding the, the beauty of discipleship in Christ and they're not giving themselves away. And we just want to challenge all of you to, to grow in all three of these areas, present, pursue, and partner. And, and what we be, really believe, and I, I mean this, I believe that every single one of you has a part in that mission. That, that if we're going to be the, this people that come from, from the scattered community, right? And then we, we come together every week and, we, and we, are, we become this gathered community with a singular purpose. I believe that every single one of you who call this your church home or will someday call this your church home has a role to play in presenting and pursuing and partnering. And the beauty is that everything in that mission, everything that we do helps us fulfill that mission. Therefore, everything that we do is equally important. Do you hear me? Because I, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's easy to read these, these stories and they're all over in the New Testament. And in fact, you can, you can take this same story, only it's in Nehemiah, which is the next Old Testament book. And this time, the common goal and mission and vision is not to rebuild the temple, but to build the city, build a wall around the city. Because that was also, I mean, it was like priority one, let's build the temple. Priority two, let's protect ourselves by building a wall around the city so that we're not, so we're not um, at risk of being attacked by our enemies. And, and so we, we see the same thing. We see all these groups of people coming together in order to build the wall. But, but when you, it's easy to think when you look at this that, that it's like, okay, man, maybe the priests are most important or, or maybe the, the priestly tribe, the Levites, or, or, or maybe the, the people of Perosh. I mean, we don't even know who they are. This is like the only time they're mentioned. 
Man, they're not that important. It'd be easy to think that. Or in our modern context, right, it would be the singers who are really important, right? Because in, in modern North American church, worship is king, okay? Like the preaching could stink, but if the music is good, everybody's cool, you know? And so it's like, and so it's like man, you know, like, like whoever is, is singing into the microphone, they have the largest role to play in the church, some would say. But, but the scripture seems to indicate that, that everybody is equal and everybody plays a role. So whether you are in front and have a microphone or whether you are in the back cleaning clogged toilets, it's of equal importance in the kingdom of God. And so whether some of you are greeters, some of you are on our hospitality team, some of you are involved in music, some of you are involved in e-kids, some of you are involved in our care team. The care team is, is the team that made the, the Wolf family the meals after Justin's surgery, right? And the, and the, and the worship team are the people that, that help us in, engage with God through music every week. And the hospitality team are the people that make sure that the meals are ready for the growth track. And, and the greeters are the people that are there to give you a, a welcoming smile and a handshake because we know that you're not here by accident and, and something you may have had a really tough week and you're like man I'm expecting a lot from church today and just the, the the smile and a handshake from a greeter can speak volumes into your life you see how every role is important and every role is equal in the kingdom of God and everyone has a role and, and I've kind of talked about like the, the things that we have going and, and, and the things that are there and, and, and going well. And there's some, you know, we could always use more hospitality people. and We could always use more e-kids people, right? Amen from our e-kids director. And we could always do these things. Like we could always use more people in these areas. But, but something that the Lord spoke to me about recently is I was kind of thinking, I was journaling. And I was like kind of dreaming about the kind of church that I feel like God wants us to be and the, the transitions and the shifts that maybe need to happen to, to kind of become that church. And, and I began listing out all these people that we'll need. You know, well, man, if we're going to get there, we need this. And if we're going to get there, we need this kind of person. And we, we need somebody to do this and, and, and all these kinds of things. And, and, and the Lord spoke to me very directly. I have already provided the people to become the church that you want to be. Like if I have given you this vision of the kind of church that I want you to be, the people to get there are already in your church. And as, and as more people come and as new people come and they bring new giftings and new skill sets and, and all these things, then God together is pushing us forward as a community, right? And so that's like, if we could, if we could get this kind of concept that, the, that they came from all of their own towns and they gathered as one man in Jerusalem. In other words, everybody had a role, which meant with every new person, God wanted to push the community forward. It was, it's not just about what God wants to do in your own spiritual life. Listen, if you're here today and you want to call this your church home, which I hope that you will, that is great news for you and for us. Are you with me? Oh, I'm preaching now, and you guys aren't really responding that well. But that's good, you know? That God wants to move us all forward if you're here today and you call it your church home. And so 
Man, some of the needs that we have, if you're here today and you can fill this needs, I promise you God is calling you to call this your church home. You guys laugh, I'm like, like I'm kidding, but I'm not really all that kidding. Um, we, need, we need folks with landscaping skills to keep our lawns in good shape. We have a dedicated team of people that mow the lawn. We need somebody who knows about weed control. Can I, I mean, can we just be honest, right? Like, like dandelions are having a heyday in our yard right now. And we need somebody that's like, you need this product applied at this time, this many times a year, and get that done, and then have a nice manicured lawn, and then the mowing team comes in, and they're mowing grass and not weeds. Come on. If that is not inspirational kingdom work, I don't know what is. You see, before I started naming needs, I wanted to set the foundation that everything is equal, right? Because some of you are like, who cares? I'll tell you who cares. The 10,000 people that drive by our church on LeMay Avenue every day. Because guess what? If our building, if our lawn is in bad order, those who don't yet know Christ drive by our church and make an assumption about the kind of ministry we do here. Oh, that's the church with the dandelions. They probably don't have a kid's ministry. Okay? It is important kingdom work. See? Some of you are like trying to connect the dots. I've been trying to do that for years. That is the truth. Okay, all I'm doing is telling you the truth. I'm not advocating that that's the right way of thinking. I'm just saying that's how it is. We started this thing called the growth track, and I hope many of you will will do that today. But um, what I realized when we started the growth track is that I was in charge of everything. And and so I I wrote the curriculum that's presented in, in all of the classes and and when we did the, our very first growth track about a month ago, it was a complete disaster. And I'd like to tell you why. Uh, because I was in charge of the meal. And, and so, um, and I thought I was doing really well because I was like, those of you who have volunteered to bring meals, the theme is Mexican. Done. Like, in my mind, that is a meal planned. So we had somebody sign up. I'll bring, a, you know, enchiladas and I'll bring this. And, and then we had somebody say, I'll bring, you know, two pounds of, of taco meat. And, and so I'm like, the meal is done. We get there, and there literally, I promise you, is a plate of enchiladas, a plate of something else, and then two pounds of taco meat <laughs> with no soft shells, no hard shells, no cheese, no lettuce, no sour cream, nothing. I need somebody in this congregation to organize the growth track meals. I need somebody in this congregation, in this community, to play your role and organize the growth track child care. We have a number of volunteers that are willing to say, hey, if there's child care that's needed and there's parents that want to take a growth track class right out of the service and they have kiddos and they they want, you know, us to watch them, we have volunteers ready. I just need somebody to schedule that and organize that. And I need somebody that can help me with the hospitality because that first time, not only was it the... The, the Mexican meal from hell, it was also, we didn't have the right plates or napkins or anything else. Like, Lord, help us. We need somebody to come alongside of your pastor and serve in this way. And I, I, I'm saying this and I'm making it funny, but I want to illustrate a very serious point. 
that everybody has a role. And don't you ever say, oh, my role is just organizing the hospitality for the growth track. Because our goal for the growth track is that people would grow in their faith, learn about our church, but encounter God through community. And if you can help make a nice meal or show strong and excellent hospitality, then people are going to experience a God in a level that they cannot when there's only two pounds of taco meat and no plates. Okay? We always need e-kids and ESM volunteers. We need more greeters to make people feel welcome and then to follow up with people who have visited our church and were guests for the first time to help make, make people or help people make really quick connections. Because the beauty of the kingdom of God is that it is expansive and there are thousands of ways that you can participate in the work of God in the world. Because you had all these people in, in the book of Ezra coming together, but their goal was to rebuild this temple. And they all played a part. And, and you might say, well, what part did the singers play in, in rebuilding the temple? Well, you'll notice that when the foundation was laid, what happened? They sang, and they celebrated, and they played trumpets, and the noise was so loud. And the building wasn't even built yet. The house of God had the very first step, step one of building a building, lay the foundation. And guess what? They get that first step done, and the community goes absolutely berserk in celebration. And that's, a, that's what I want to do as a community, is not only do I want to come together uh, from all different places, gather together as one toward a common goal and a common vision and a common mission, but when we help accomplish that, and when we win, and when we see lives changed, and when we see people presenting and pursuing and partnering, and when we see the work of God in the life of a family of our church, guess what? We want to take the time to celebrate. We want to go wild with celebration. We want to we want to honor what God is doing in our community. They laid the foundation and out come the singers and out come the trumpet players. And you'll notice that the Levites, the priestly tribe, were advising. Right? Did you notice that? And advising is another word for empowering. Why doesn't the pastor just build the temple? I mean, he's going to preach in it anyway. It's his deal. It's the role of the pastor to empower and equip so that the people do the ministry. Every role important. Every role important. All right. Some of you are like, man, that's great, and I'm inspired, but man, I don't know what my role is. Lucky for you, we have a growth track class designed exactly to help you discover your spiritual gifts. And it happens today. And we have room in the class for you. How's that? So if you're here today and you're like, awesome, inspirational, I'm in, man. But I don't know what I'm supposed to do. Go to the 301 class. And the 301 class isn't going to give you some magic answer. and It's not some magic bullet, but it's going to point you in a direction. It's going to say, maybe try this. Try this, try this. Every role is important. I gotta hurry.
Oh, man, I got to hurry. Okay. No, I don't. Who said that? My best friend. Awesome. Here's, here's, here's the other thing I want to point out. Everybody doing their role, and then, and then listen to this. Verse, chapter 2, verse 68. When they arrived at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem, some of the heads of the families gave free will offerings toward the rebuilding of the house of God on its site. And then it records what they gave. And, and then in chapter 3, when they when they begin to participate in worship and like the real ministry begins to happen and they're returning to true worship, it says that, that some of the animals for sacrifice were given, what, as a free will offering. And so we have offerings going toward, yeah, man, let's, let's build this thing. And then we have offerings toward, yeah, man, let's do ministry and let's worship. And, and, and then we have uh, in verse seven of chapter three, when then they gave money to the, to the masons and the carpenters, and then they gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre. And, and what you see is that God's plan takes generous people. There is no way for God's kingdom to come on this earth as it is in heaven, as Jesus taught us to pray, without his people being generous. There just isn't. God's plan takes resource and it takes generosity. And very quickly, the biblical model for generosity includes two forms of giving. The first is the tithe. The second is the offering. And there is a distinction. The tithe is, predates the law, but is also included in the law. It's found in Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. It says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I do not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. The word tithe literally means a tenth, a tenth, one tenth of, of, an, of a person's income is to be given to the work of God. And that's what the law in the Bible begins, points out as a beginning point for generosity. A lot of people are like, no, man, we're... We're New Testament people, uh, you know, tithing. That's, that's Old Testament stuff. And, and, and I always say the same thing is, sure, the law told us to give one-tenth, and we're not under the law anymore. Now we're under grace and love. And let me ask you a question. Would we give less under love and grace than we would give under the law? No, we would always give more. The, the, the grace and the love of God would motivate us to give more. The, the tenth, the tithe in the Old Testament is, is, is saying to people, hey, let's start here. Let's start here as a point of generosity to resource the work of the kingdom and the church. And then I really believe, and I'm convicted, that the tithe goes to the local church. And many scholars agree with this, but the uh, the local church is analogous to the storehouse in Malachi. And so it says to bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And, and, and the storehouse is, people would not tithe in the Old Testament money like you and I would, but they would tithe, their resource was their grain. And so they would tithe 10% of their harvest into this storehouse that was close to them, and the storehouse then was used to feed that community. It was a way of saying, I am finding benefit 
from the foods from the storehouse. Therefore, because I'm finding benefit from that place, I'm going to tithe into that place. And the scripture says, bring your whole tithe to the storehouse. And so if you say that the storehouse is analogous to the local church where you're getting your spiritual nourishment, where you're getting community, all of these things, then the scripture, I believe, is clear. We ought to bring all of our tithe to the local church. The second form of giving that's biblical is the offering. And that is anything that goes over and above the tithe. So I'm tithing 10% to my local church, the place that I call home, my church home, the place I'm regularly attending. And then anything that anything else that I want to do over and above that is the offering. And there's lots of ways to give offering. There's, there's missionaries that need support. There's Bible translators that need support. There's, there's uh, great organizations where you can sponsor a child. I mean, the opportunities for investing in the kingdom are absolutely endless. And the, the, the scope that the scripture teaches is the tithe and the offering. But the point is this. The point is that if all of the people of God were to de- develop a heart of generosity, his mission in the world would be fully resourced. But statistics show that less than half of people give at all, and those that do give to the local church give about 2%. And so if we had like, if we had everybody not only playing their role, but if we had everybody developing a heart of generosity, let me tell you something. There's no limit to what God could do through this church, in this city, in the world, if everybody would gather together as one man in Jerusalem. If we would all come together with this common heart, this common vision. And what we see here in Ezra is the offering, right? And it doesn't say that everybody gave 10%. It said that some of the heads of the families gave a free will offering. But what we see in Nehemiah as they seek to build the wall around the city is that everyone began to tithe to that work. And so tithe and offering are all throughout the scripture. But I know that generosity takes a change of heart. And 10% sounds like a lot to some of you. And so we're going to do something unique today to help you develop a heart of generosity. In fact, we're going to help you jumpstart your generosity. And here's what we're going to do. Rather than at the end of a message like this, it would be traditional for, for folks to say, no, Let's pass the offering plates and everybody be generous and all of that. Now, we are going to pass the offering plates. But on your way out, we're going to have offering plates that you can actually take from. In other words, we're going to give you money to go and be generous in what we are calling a reverse offering. Pretty cool, huh? Like, how hard can it be to be generous with someone else's money? But our goal is this, as we give you a little bit of money, it's not much, like none of you are going to open up a $500 bill, okay, and be like, woo, like none of that, okay? You can expect a $500 bill that is missing two zeros, okay? (laughs) But we're going to give you money to help you develop a heart of generosity, and here are the rules. One per family, grab an envelope out of the offering plates on your way out today. And then you open it up, and inside are two things. The money, 
in the form of cash, and then a card that says, it's just a simple way to say, God loves you. And the rules are, if you take an envelope, you cannot spend that money on your own or on yourself. You have to spend it for the benefit of someone else and then give them this card that says, just a practical way to say God loves you. And then, so what we want you to do are we want you to receive the reverse offering. Then we want you to pray about how to use it. And then we want you to do it, be obedient to what God asks you to do. And then we want you to share it. And our goal and our hope is that there would be this ripple that turns into a wave of blessing and generosity across this city and across this area because some people live in severance. But all over, all over northern Colorado, we want people to be blessed by the people of God. And then what we hope, what we hope is that as you spend someone else's money and you're generous with it, that something happens in your heart that you'll begin to be more open to the idea of being generous with your own money. Because listen to this, God asks us to give in scripture. We have this model of giving, the tithe and the offering, not because God needs your money, but because when we give, we become more like him who is a giver. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You see, God is a giver. And if we're going to develop a Christ likeness, we also need to give. And we're going to help you. We're going to jumpstart your generosity. We're going to help open the doors of what it's like to be generous today through our reverse offering. Thanks for listening to the Emmaus Road Podcast. We hope this message has been encouraging to you. If you'd like to support the ministry of Emmaus Road, you can do so online. Just visit theroadfc.org and click online giving.